Welcome to another edition of the Inside Scoop. My name is Neil Crawford. I'm your host and also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. If you're not familiar with the Inside Scoop, it's a podcast dedicated to helping parents learn about the soccer pathways that would be available to their child if they live in another city around the world. And this show is brought to you by Anytime Soccer Training. Anytime Soccer Training is the only training application with well over 5,000 training videos. Every video is 100% follow along. Coaches love the fact that they can create teams and see that the players are using it. Parents love the fact that the upgrades are less than a dinner for two. Club directors enjoy the fact that they can now give their players a one-stop shop to get better at home that costs less than $5 per player per year. So check out anytime-soccer.com to learn more about the program. You can actually join the program for free and get a lot of great free content as well. Really appreciate your support. All right, so moving, moving, moving right along. So today's show is a quick follow-up to yesterday's show. And the goal of today's show is to offer more detail, almost like a field manual or a demonstration, demonstration as if my friend was standing right beside me and we were doing a um, workshop on what I talked about more in theory yesterday. I owe that to you guys to be as practical and actionable as and specific as possible. Now, for those of you who did not listen to yesterday's broadcast, I encourage you to do so. But let me quickly read on my phone. Let me quickly read the question just so we're on the same page. And I'm going to breeze through this because I just want to get to the meat and potatoes really, really quickly. All right. So the first question was, I realize that anytime soccer training does not result in a foot bias. However, I don't see a deliberate path in any time to close the gap between non-dominant and dominant foot. Am I missing something? I am trying to close the gap outside of any time by having my son juggle using alternate feet, but with more non-dominant foot usage. An example is 50 consecutive alternate foot juggling juggles using two left foot juggles, then a right foot juggling pattern. After mastering, in parentheses, that, then I will go to two left knees, then a right knee, so forth and so on. Is there a better way, better way, did I do something, did you do something differently? And then the next one is, uh, and I'm gonna skip some of it. I really like the train that the trainer found his weakness. So so in this one, let me paraphrase by saying, uh, this listener was at a, a clinic, the trainer uh, had him do some juggle ball tennis, ten juggling with a tennis ball, uh, apparently the player struggled with this and this was an opportunity for the dad and son to say, okay, you know, <laughs> that's a fixable that, you know, that's in our control. We can handle that. And so now the plan is in January to beef up that area of his game. And, and then I talk about, well, why would you even do that? Well, there's a lot of brain science around that you do that. And then there's a lot of, you know, some would say common sense. Others may not agree, but there's a lot of soccer reasons why you wouldn't why you want to do that, including improving your touch, improving your balance and coordination, improving your uh, foot and eye coordination, just improving your perception, improving your ability to um, to manipulate uh, space and time and move your foot. With the, all these things are, are 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 helpful, and when you do it with a tennis ball, um, I mean the logic is really straightforward. It makes it it requires even finer motor skills that you then transfer to 
the regular size ball, right? So that's why you'd want to do it. And I understand that. Now, so, and so let me quickly go through some of the key points from yesterday's podcast, uh, just so we're on the same page, and then jump into, I guess you'd say like the ver verbal workshop for today. All right. So the first thing I said is, yes, I agree. Anytime soccer training removes the foot bias, that was one important parts of the program for me. But we have to remember that effective players tend to use their most effective foot most of the time. So that means you, in, in most cases, and again, this is just my opinion, a effective player is going to use their strong foot unless, unless it just really makes sense for them to use their non-dominant foot. And that is okay. Being two-footed doesn't mean you use your non-dominant foot when um, just because it's the you know the right thing to do. Um, being two-footed means you exploit and you use that non-dominant foot when and the non, uh, when it makes sense, and you don't go out of your way and you don't make decisions that, or you don't um, make mistakes because you cannot use your non-dominant foot and so what that looks like is a 50 50 split as it relates to any time soccer training is a very healthy um, divide that by definition is improving the non-dominant foot because many people will argue and i'm sort of in this camp that you just need to be super prof proficient with that uh non-dominant foot not not equal and therefore, um, because the foot that you're going to be using mostly in games is your dominant foot, you can argue that it's good to get a few more reps with your dominant foot in some respects, even though we do understand if your non-dominant foot is your weak, is really weak, you may over-index just to bring it up to a level that is reasonable for a non-dominant foot. I hope that wasn't confusing. So what that looks like is if, if anytime soccer training is a 50-50 split and you know these team environments and these other environments, they're going to over-index on the dominant foot, it gets you around that 70 to 30 or 60, um, 40, depending on how much you use anytime soccer training, of course. So for my sons, that it would be something like that. All right. And so the next point I made is um, you, if you follow the program, you, I have seen it time and time again. You follow the program and you do these thousands and thousands of five-minute videos, you will become two-footed and you don't necessarily need to overthink it. So I worry a little bit about adding stuff like different um, combinations if you haven't really like exhausted, say, all the tennis ball juggling videos, for example. But at the same time, human plus technology is better than humans or technology. So you, you can't really go wrong. So I do it. You're going to do it. It's fine. Whatever you do, it, it's not going to be bad at all. And it may even be better. But my admonishment is sometimes I have found the juice is not worth the squeeze. So anytime I try to go too far off script with my sons, that's when the friction starts happening. So I gotta be really careful about, is that the thing that I really wanna talk to them about as opposed to just following the script. So an example could be of something, you know, going off script is I, we have all of these warm up videos and they're just continuous juggling videos, right? They use different balls, but they're just continuous juggling videos. So if I, if I hit play on a two minute one, I may you ask my son to do tennis ball that time, or I may ask my son to do, um, size one ball 
um, just for the two minutes. And, and you can do whatever. If you want to do a special combination, you can, uh, even though there are combinations in the program. All right. So we talked about that. Then another another part was, OK, well, what juggling record should you expect? What would, do you recommend for an elite player, say 2011? And in the podcast, I admonished, number one, on the term elite, I have to add so many qualifications. And number two is, you know, what is elite, right? So <laughs> people give me a hard time sometimes when I talk about my sons, uh, but I just use this as a reference point, And I just know I have to just take the daggers. But when I listened to, when, when I was trying to seek this information, you know, people never gave numbers or any data. So I couldn't really conceptualize what level are we talking about. So when my son was relatively young, about 10 years old, he was well into the thousands. So if I threw out a number like 50, you know, I would be grossly underestimating what your child is capable of doing with a consistent five minutes. But if I throw out thousands and don't mention, oh, yeah, but by the way, um, he was doing that stuff since he was six and I happened to found a training company. So, uh, and he was my oldest and I spent all this time on it, then that's also misleading. So you, you, you start where you are, but I'm very hesitant to say, oh, an elite player needs to be able to do this and that kind of thing. Those are good for benchmarks. And I wish there were benchmarks out there. Those are helpful for some macro benchmark. For parent trainer to parent trainer, whatever benchmark they have, I, I, whatever, just stick with the plan and you're going to see the numbers grow. But having said that, if I had to just give a practical tip then based on all the anecdotal information I have, what I've read, what I've tried to find, it looks like around the 50 to 100 range is where you definitely need to be at around 2011 with any part of the foot. Some people throw the head in there. I think that's going to be a bit challenging if you don't practice it enough and there's medical issues around that that. So whatever, but definitely each foot, you should be able to do 100, then 50 to 100 and 50 to 100 with uh, both both feet. That's with a regular size ball. And then a tennis ball, I'm not sure. There's not a lot of data out there that I have seen. I would be interested in that. So in the previous podcast, I think it was mentioned that 10 was, 10 was where the child was at. So in a month, if you can get to 25 to 40, I think that's more than reasonable. The key is the is sticking with the plan and being consistent more so than a specific goal with the exception, obviously, you know, there's the external motivation, there's the fun piece, there's the kid challenging themselves and all that kind of normal stuff. That's always great. Okay. So now that I said that, let me pivot, right? Let me tee this uh, workshop piece up with one more piece of uh, sort of overarching way I think about it. So if you, if you recall in previous shows, I said, Hey, the, the parent is in, in a unique advantage to help their child in certain areas. And they're, and they're at a unique disadvantage to help them in others. So they're at a unique advantage to help them with getting maximum reps. You live with your child. You can squeeze in five minutes here, 10 minutes there. You had a unique advantage to help them with a growth mindset. Hopefully you're raising a, you're raising a kid that's going to be relatively disciplined, understand, um, get a lot of life lessons. Just think in the way that you hope them for them to think, right? Um, you're in a unique advantage to help them with aerial control, not because it's disproportionately more important. It's just that um, you live with them. And this is something that the soccer community has decided is something best done practiced at home. You are at a unique 
um, advantage. And here we go with one more. This is not an exhaustive list, but this is one that I don't talk about enough that I'm going to talk about now. You're at a unique advantage to go into a level of detail that only the individual or a parent is going to do in most cases. And I, I phrase it like that. So you're at a unique advantage to go into a level of detail that the coach just cannot do. They got a lot of kids. And I say in most cases, because maybe you have this, this awesome trainer who's their life's mission is to go into a level of detail um, that's beyond what any normal person would do. I happen to do that, but that's my ministry. I happen to do that with the kids I train. That's my passion, right? But this is very unusual uh, from what I have seen. Not a knock on anybody else. It's my ministry. It's like what I love doing, going into a level of detail and refining things at a, at a level that most people don't even, if they even think about it, they don't find it to be particularly relevant. And it may not be relevant, right? But you as a parent have a unique opportunity to go into a level of detail that others are not going to with your own child. And that's because in addition to the fact you live with them and you're there with them, you have a very long runway, right? And don't forget that long runway is very important. You got 10 years, 15 years of development, not one season. And so having said that, now we're going to do the, our verbal workshop and I'm going to ask you to picture some things. And then if you have questions, we can, we'll, we can talk offline as well. So the verbal workshop is, and I mentioned some of this stuff in the previous podcast, but I didn't go into detail and didn't lay it out as logically as I want to try to do now. Of let's, a pit, let's picture that I'm on the field with you and your child now. And we're going to work on juggling. The first thing I'm going to do is set up a parameter and that parameter size. I said parameter, perimeter, that perimeter's size is going to be dictated by their their, their level. Right. So uh, my younger son listened to the podcast yesterday. And the first thing he said is he only listens to the part where I mentioned him. He was like, Dad, you're, I didn't start off with 20. I didn't start. Off, I'm like, you were five. You don't remember. But I didn't start off by 20 by 20. But for the purposes of this, let's just say you starting off with 10 by 10. It should get um, smaller and smaller as you go. And then once they get to the point where they can do it one foot by one foot, then you don't have to worry about it too, too much. So now with my sons, I do set up an eight by eight perimeter, but it's really more of a of a guide rail. Now, my younger one, I do I set up the eight by eight perimeter to help him with his control. And we're going to talk about that now. My older one is just more... Uh, just because we've just been doing it so long, it's almost like a ritual. So I set up some kind of perimeter and I do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I want them to be mindful of control. See, part of deliberate practice is being mindful. So you can go out and juggle and let the ball take you wherever it takes you. And that's, that's, that's great and you're gonna get better and it's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. As a matter of fact, it's a lot of intrinsically right with that. But you'll see in a typical team practice, they'll start off juggling and the kids will wander wherever they want to go, just wandering around. But when you set the perimeter up and you say you have to stay here, it adds a degree of deliberateness to it, which is saying you cannot leave this perimeter, right? The next thing, the reason I set up this perimeter, and this is more of a practical matter, is when my kids were really young, they, like all kids, they would kick the ball away, kick the ball away. And then we would spend time chasing it. And that would waste time that we should be juggling. 
And remember my first, um, the, my first started working with juggling with my son in this deliberate way before school. And so we would have like five minutes and I wanted to get the most out of that five minutes, right? And so the cumulative impact of getting the most out of that five minutes really adds up, added up. And so I had to train him to be able to do this in a very controlled environment. Another reason is because um, there's a, I hate to go in this level of detail, it's so embarrassing, but it is what it is. There's a perverse incentive, especially when the kids are really young, to kick the ball away, right? Because then they get to go run and chase it, and that's time they're not spending juggling, right? And so I wanted to set the perimeters up because that's going to lead into the positive constraints piece. So to, to eliminate that perverse incentive to kick the ball away, to try to get one extra juggle, but kick the ball 20 feet away. That's not what we wanted. So that's another reason why we uh, set up the perimeter. Okay. Now, in terms of saving time, I always carry multiple balls, right? Because if the ball did go away, I didn't want them spending time chasing it. I wanted them to grab another ball um, right there and start juggling again. As a matter of fact, even in my clinics, I do that. So if, if you ever came to one of the clinics, I don't care if it's 20 kids, uh, when the ball goes away, I'm tossing them another one. I'm grabbing another, I'm running, I'm tossing them another one. Now, some of that is a perverse incentive because the kids, some of them are young, so they enjoy me tossing them a new ball and them catching it. But hey, there's a little bit of tossing and catching involved in that. And it's a good workout for me. But the bottom line is I want them to use every second. I don't want this to be a casual affair in the way that juggling normally is done in a team environment. This is very deliberate. Okay. So keep multiple balls with you. So that means if it's tennis ball juggling, I might have 20 tennis balls so that I'm handing my son a ball as he's doing it. If it's regular juggling, I might have five or six balls there, depending on how good they are. All right, let's see. All right, so I'm looking at my notes. So the next thing is, if you can picture this, I, I'm very specific about if we're juggling with the laces, they only can use the laces to juggle. Oftentimes you'll see kids overcompensate for a bad touch by using the inside of their foot. But I want them very specifically focused on the laces. If it's the inside foot, focus on the inside foot. I don't want them to have any bad habits. So with my sons and the kids I train, when they're juggling, it's with the laces, okay? Now I'm not saying you're juggling with the laces because the laces are um, particularly important or versus inside or the outside foot. I'm saying, I'm not allowing them to do anything to overcompensate for a bad touch. So that means using the inside of the foot because they couldn't strike it with their laces. All right. Um, I got to read my nuts, notes here. So the next one is, if you can picture this, when your child, let's say you're alternating feet juggling and your child, then the ball drops. So they juggling and the ball drops. Now, this is detailed. So you got to really, really listen to this now. I don't let them start with the same foot again. So when you watch a child or any child juggling, 99% of the time, they always start juggling with their non-dominant, with their dominant foot. So they roll it up and start juggling with their dominant foot. And my rule is if the ball drops, you have to start with your non-dominant foot. This actually really helps them improve their balance and coordination, gets out any bad habits and helps them become two-footed. 
and it's just a slow process because a lot of times um, they can start by with their dominant foot and get off to a better start but that first touch with their non-dominant foot is not as good so if you're working with me and the ball drops you've got to start with your non-dominant foot um as well and so if you want it to get it over index on um juggling and they're alternating you could always say start with your non-dominant foot by definition you're going to get more that's going to increase the non-dominant foot touches in a way that doesn't stress them out okay um so i had a buddy that owned a small bar it was called bar bar below back in uh, london it was a tiny bar and i said to him i said capano why do you why do you have such a small bar something to that effect we were just having a conversation i was like this bar is kind of small why, why go with such a small bar? He gave me all these reasons, but he ended by, he said, Neil, I can make more money from 20 of the right customers than 200 of the wrong ones. And that always stuck with me um, as I, in life, that always stuck with me. Like, you know, I can make, yeah, again, I can make more money with 20 of the right customers than 200 of the wrong ones. But that's how I feel about your touch. I care more. I, I see more, I have, I give, I give more value in you being able to do five consistent, pristine touches over saying 50 juggles and you not having that really good control. And so that's my pitch to say, if you're working on tennis ball juggling, in, in addition to whatever else you're doing, just follow the tennis ball juggling program. It's going to start off with kick and catch. And you're going to say, if you, you know, again, I'm using my friend as an example. Oh yeah, but my son can already do 10 juggles. But when they do that kick and catch, you are looking at them and you're working with them to say, make sure that that, that kick is perfect. Make sure that the, the um, height of that ball is the same. Make sure every touch is the same and concentrate and think about it. And you're doing that by kicking it and catching it. In the next video might be kick it twice in the next one. Just follow the program, right? And focus on a pristine touch because that's going to pay you, pay you huge dividends in the future. Um, and then uh, da, 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 I don't want to lose my train of thought here. I'm reading my notes here. Again, we're doing workshops. So we're talking about deliberate practice, right? And we're talking about aerial control in the context of deliberate practice. So my sons do their juggling routines facing the phone in a speaker, right? I have a Bluetooth speaker and a phone. I don't care what the point is, but I but it's always that for them because I always have it. And and so when they're juggling, they have to face the phone. If they start juggling and the ball goes awry, they have they try to keep their juggle going, but they're constantly trying to move back and face the same point. This adds a degree of deliberateness to it because, again, remember, we're working on that touch. We're not working on your ability to keep the ball in the air, even though that's important. We're working on your ability to refine your touch in a, in a way that places the ball um, exactly where you want it because a, a, a player with a supreme touch will make something look easy that for others is actually relatively difficult.
And so that means what my sons, when I'm training them, I'm training them, I'm training them, they have to be facing the phone and facing the speaker or in your case, facing whatever. And that's the North Star. And if the ball goes a little bit a different way, they're constantly working to get it back there. That adds another layer of a directional aerial control to the mix as well, which is also important because now you're refining that touch in such a way that you're able to move your body to get it back to where you where you face it. There's no randomness in this type of control for me in these very concentrated juggling sessions. Uh, now, um, in terms of the juggling record, I do, within any time soccer training, I do use the time trials, and that's 15 seconds, 30 seconds, one minute, two minutes. If you go to the tennis ball juggling or the, you go to the time trial section, there's um, size one, tennis ball, all uh, regular size ball time trials. I use those. That's what I do within any time soccer training. But when my sons were really young, um, I use a concept I call positive constraints, which is like a play on gamifying. And then I also use negatives. And I didn't explain negatives well in the last podcast. These things are super simple. So I hate to even say them like this, but hey, I didn't see anybody else doing them. So I got I just got to put in the podcast. So we talked about there's a perimeter, right? So a positive constraint, if I want, and we talked about you want to reach a certain juggling record. So in this case, let's say you want to reach a juggling record of 100. A positive constraint game says this, start off with five juggles, you got five attempts to get to 100, you count your attempts really loud, not super loud, but loud enough where there's no confusion, and there's some benefit in that, and I'm counting your, you count your every time you juggle, you count your juggles, and I'm counting your attempts. The only thing I'm saying is attempt, attempts, you juggle. If the ball goes out, you lose an attempt, okay? And, and, and you can imagine that you see what the average is. You got five. If you don't, oh uh, yeah, you, so you got to average 100 divided by five. Next time, if you don't make it, right, then the next time it's, uh, you get 10 attempts. Now you can play around with the number, right? It might be eight for you, whatever. You can play around with the number. But to keep the math simple, you have 10, 10 attempts. And so that means your average now has to be um, 10 juggles, and that's kind of how you do it. Now, I can add rules to the game to address any, uh, to make any corrective actions I need. So if, the, if my son keeps kicking the ball out of the perimeter, again, I can say you lose an attempt if the ball goes out of the perimeter. Let's say that I know my son should easily get to 50. Well, let's say, and, they, and he doesn't because he just wants to get to 10. Then if you don't, your minimum, you got it, you have a minimum of 50, but, um, and if you don't make it, you get 10. What do I get out of this? I, I get the fact that I know my son is trying as hard as he can. And I get the fact that if he doesn't reach it, that's totally fine because he's doing more juggles. That's what I want. And he gets a transparent process that doesn't rely on the parent and he knows it's going when it's going to end. And it gets a little easier as he goes. And that's totally fine. That's what I, I recommend. And you can do that. You can do those constraints, say, with left foot. So at the end of each training session, um, when my sons were really young, especially before any time soccer training, but even with any time soccer training, if I see that they're lagging behind, at the end of each training session, it I would do, I would do what we would call a cycle. And a cycle would be your left foot, right foot, um, then both feet. And then left thigh, right thigh, and then both thighs, something like that. 
and it might be five to 50 on the left, five to 60, five to 50 on the right, and blah, blah, blah. Same things with your thighs. And then if you want to over-index on the non-dominant foot, you can say five to 100 on the left. That's totally fine. So that's one thing. The next thing is if I'm not going to go through that whole process, I did what we would call negatives. So let's say that um, I want my son to, uh, again, juggling regular, let's say it's 50. And I have him juggling with a tennis ball. I'll say, okay, you you got to juggle to 50, but every time the ball drops, it's five juggles after, right? So then let's say the ball drops. He's trying to get the 50, the ball drops uh, five times. So his average was about 10. Well, that means now he has 25 juggles. Okay, no problem. So the next time, the next negative, he has to get to 25. Let's say the ball drops two times. Now he has 10, all right? Now he has to get the 10 juggles. The ball drops one time. Okay. Now he has to get to five juggles. So we call them negatives because the numbers are slowly, it's slowly working down. <laughs> but it's also, I'm laughing, but it's also negatives because they don't like it, right? So every time the ball drops, it's like a negative point, right? And so you can work your way all the way down to 100 and you can make the negatives small right so you can say well you gotta get 100 juggles but i'm gonna make the negatives two so every time the ball drops two four six it's just that little bit of it's something about it that it doesn't take much and the kids are going to try their best because that's really all you want now let me conclude to say that i always threw out that number a thousand times my son was doing this and that my older one and you have to remember um that i started working with him way before i thought about any time soccer training working with him is actually how i got the idea was creating any time soccer training so in full transparency um i work with him a lot it wasn't a whole lot it was through that experience of working with him that i learned that this is not going to be sustainable so when i say you know five minutes a day makes a huge difference that is absolutely true i'm seeing it with my i'm seeing it with my younger son now but my younger son, jug, son's juggling record is not anywhere near. Well, I don't even know what his juggling record is. When you Once you get to the second one, you don't even think about this stuff as much. I don't even know what it is, but I can see that he's constantly improving. So it's just at a slower rate. But when my older son, I was I worked with him a lot. Now, I was thoughtful enough to know that I wasn't going to do a no days off. It, I was thoughtful enough to know that. But it wasn't like, oh, five minutes here, five minutes there when we went out to a training session. So I would do the positive constraints thing that I'm telling you about. And it might be, you know, 100, 100, 100, a, a cycle of 100. And by doing that, it really accelerated his uh, ability, his aerial, his aerial control. So I think you can get there either way. But my older son had a personality where it did not appear to bother him in that way so I just he just did as much as he could do but when my younger son came around I saw that okay he has a different personality and I need to treat it a little bit differently and that's why I again and I think my younger son is more indicative of most children why the small chunks of being while being super consistent is a better um mitigate some of the risk factors that's commonly associated with burnout and stress and all kind of stuff that would be associated with doing with overdoing it. And so that's my admonishment there. I don't want to tell you guys, oh yeah, I just do it five minutes a day and he got to it. No, 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 no. You hear that a lot. I, I, I just heard 
I read an article where Christian Pulisic's parents was basically saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we just we just took him to practice and whatever he wanted to do, that's what we did. And then we booked tickets to Europe as well to take him to overseas and these academies and all kinds of stuff. I, I don't know. I can't reconcile this type, this type of um, advice. So I don't want to be like that. We, my older son, we were on the grind. He was on the grind and I was helping him. And that's how he got to these thousands and ridiculous numbers. But if you just follow the course, um, I think you will blow any number you see out of the water. It'll just take you a little bit longer. And that's fine, too. That was the longest, longest, longest answer to say, hey, 50 is cool. Keep doing what you're doing. But trust the program that we have created. It really works. I have seen it. And add this other stuff that I that I suggested to the mix. It's totally fine. Um, and do whatever you're doing, it's totally fine. Uh, you really can't go wrong. But if you add a level of deliberateness to it, you'll see that the gains will grow and their touch will improve even more. All right, guys, I hope this was helpful. This is Neil Crawford, founder of Anytime Soccer Training. Let's get better together.